chapter 13. We'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 13. One of the great benefits of expository preaching is that God has the voice in His church by preaching through books of the Bible chapter after chapter. It's not the pastor who decides what God's people should hear. It's God who decides. Since His Spirit inspired the biblical authors to write as God intended. There are times, however, when receiving this blessing means we have to deal with difficult texts. Today is such a day. No pastor really would choose to preach 2 Samuel 13 on his own. As you're about to hear, this is a very hard passage. And I'll do my best to make it appropriate for little ears. It's a very hard passage. But as difficult as it is, I'm thankful we've come to it today because it reminds us that God has the voice in His church. We wouldn't choose to deal with these sorts of things, but God in His wisdom intends for us to do so, for this is His Word and this is His church and we are His people, and therefore we should listen. So let's do that now. Please follow along with me as we read from God's inspired Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to His church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But Amnon would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. 
so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be a burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go. He gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask the Heavenly Father to bless our time considering His words. pray. Father, we need Your grace. We need Your grace to understand what it is that You would have us to hear from Your Word. We know that 
all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is therefore profitable for us. And so we pray, God, by Your Spirit that You would help us to know that today. Lord, please keep me from error and please give Your people discernment as we consider the Scriptures with one another. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Preaching textbooks will tell you that a good sermon introduction sets the congregation at ease. Perhaps with some humor or a good story. Set them at ease, the textbooks say, and they will listen to what follows. Well, friends, there's no way to set you at ease about 2 Samuel 13. Few chapters in the Bible are as disturbing and distressing as this one. It is a seemingly godless passage. People do godless things and then respond in godless ways. And it all happens within the royal family, no less. That means that Israel as a whole is deeply corrupted. That's how it worked in the Old Testament, you remember. So goes the king, so goes the nation. So if David's family acts in godless ways, then what should you expect to find among the people of God? Godlessness. It's a seemingly godless passage. Even the way the chapter is written speaks to this on some level. Think back through those excruciating 39 verses we just read and ask yourself, how many references to God were there? None. None. There's no prophet on the sidelines decrying what happens. There's no priest making intercession and reminding people of God's law. There's not even a closing verse like there was in 2 Samuel 11 that tells us God was angry with these things. Even the way the chapter is written seems to be godless. And that makes it all the more disturbing. And so the question becomes, what are we to make of this chapter? How are we to handle this? Those are good questions. I've spent the better part of a whole week asking those same questions. How should we handle this text? Well, there are no easy answers to that, but verse 1 does give us a way forward. Verse 1 introduces us to the main characters, and you'll notice that each one is a member of David's family. There's David, of course, the king, and the father of those involved. There's Amnon, David's oldest son and the presumed heir to the throne. There's Absalom, also David's son, Amnon's half-brother, who is quite ambitious himself. And then there's Tamar, David's beautiful daughter, and Absalom's full sister, who bears the weight of the chapter's distress. Those are the main players in the text. And the action of the chapter is carried along by those characters. You can actually break down the passage by character. Amnon schemes, so Tamar pleads. Amnon violates, so Tamar mourns. David sits, so Absalom strikes. You can break it down by character. That's 2 Samuel 13. It's carried along by the members of David's family. And that emphasis on David's family tells us how we should handle the text. The way to understand this chapter is by focusing on what, on what each character is saying to us, both in their words and in their deeds. Focus on what each character is saying to us. And as we do that, as we observe the lives of this deeply flawed family, we'll find what God is doing 
in this seemingly godless passage. You see, God may not be mentioned in these verses, but He's not absent. There is purpose in this distress, but it takes humility and it takes faith to see it. So as verse 1 tells us, there are four main characters, which means we'll consider four truths, or you could say four lessons, from the disaster in David's family. We'll begin in verses 1-11 to with Amnon, whose life shows us the threat of unchecked lust. The threat of unchecked lust. Verse 1 tells us that Amnon loves his half-sister Tamar. And this love is so powerful that Amnon is literally sick to his stomach over what to do. Now the fact that Tamar is his sister should already give you pause. Such desire was clearly against God's Word. Leviticus 18 But if there was any doubt, the rest of the description reveals that Amnon's love is not really love at all. It's lust. And this becomes abundantly clear as the chapter unfolds. You can follow the progression, and it is unsettling. There's the evidence of lust in verse 2. Why is Amnon making himself sick? Look at the end of the verse. Because it seemed impossible to him to do anything to her. Friends, love does not seek to do something to another person. Love gives of itself for another person. Love sacrifices sacrifices of itself for another person. Love lays down its own life for the good of another person. This isn't love. He doesn't love her. This is lust. And honestly, it's terrifying. Amnon can't see a way to do anything to his sister. It's the evidence of lust. But beginning in verse 3, we also see the encouragement of lust. Amnon has a friend. It's his cousin, actually. So, everyone in the chapter is related to David. He has a cousin named Jonadab. And verse 3 describes him as a very crafty man. Do you know who else in the Old Testament is described as very crafty? The serpent in the garden. And it's that same serpentine voice that now speaks through Jonadab. Dale Davis, in his very helpful commentary, calls Jonadab the most dangerous man in the chapter. And I would tend to agree with him. Jonadab has all the skills of wisdom, but he uses them for wickedness. That's a dangerous combination, friends. Skill without godliness. And Jonadab is a dangerous man. He sees Amnon moping around, and so he asks him, why are you so downcast? Unashamed, Amnon confesses his desire for his sister, and Jonadab doesn't even bat an eye. No problem, this snake of a man whispers. He has a plan. Verse 5, just pretend to be sick. And when your dad comes to check on you, ask for him to send your sister. You see, it's also plausible. David's presence will mask any suspicion. And it's also sinister. Jonadab schemes to give Amnon access to what he wants. Or to say it another way, Like a fan to a flame, Jonadab encourages Amnon's lust. Now, as an aside, friends, before we go on, beware of people like Jonadab. Beware of people like Jonadab. People who can get you whatever you want, but without any scruples or restraint. Such people have a lot of skill to work the angles and to finesse whatever your problem is, but without the boundaries of integrity, they leave devastation in their wake. 
Listen to me. As Christians, we should never be impressed with people who can get results, but who sacrifice character and principles along the way to do so. Don't be impressed with that person. He's crafty like the serpent. Beware of the John Adabs of this world. Finally, you see the expression of lust. Amnon puts his scheme into play and it works. I hate the fact that it works. David comes and then he sends for Tamar, verse 7. And Tamar comes to care for her brother because why would she suspect anything else? I mean, her dad told her to go. It's her brother's house. Why would she suspect anything else? And so she goes. And then it happens. Amnon sends everyone out, verse 9, and he summons his sister. And when she enters, Amnon grabs her and gives voice to his lust, verse 11. Come lie with me, my sister. So with physical force, Amnon breaks God's word and he assaults his own sister. This is the fruit of unchecked lust. Having cultivated lust in his heart, Amnon now expresses that lust in a way that will devastate another person made in the image of God, even his own sister. Friends, before we keep going with the rest of the chapter, we should pause here to be sobered with the reality of how powerful unchecked lust can be in the human heart. All sin is dangerous and deadly. I want you to hear me clearly on that. All sin is dangerous and deadly. But there is something uniquely devastating about the sin of lust. When left unchecked, lust eats away at your ability to love and it turns other people into objects to be used. Don't toy around with it, friends. I know lust has been an ever-present danger throughout human history, but our lives in the, dis- in the digital age give us unprecedented access to the encouragement and expression of lust. Don't go there. Don't go there. Be vigilant in what you see and in what you imagine. Find someone today who will help you in the battle. Take whatever steps you need to take to kill lust at its root in your heart. Do what Amnon did not do. Think about someone else. At the moment of desire, cut lust off with God's Word and with the help of fellow believers who will pray for you. It is amazing to me what one phone call or one conversation can do to sap the power of lust in the moment. I'm not saying that one phone call will defeat lust forever, but lust is a very in-the-moment sin, isn't it? It's very in-the-moment. And the best way to kill it is to attack it in that moment. Don't toy around with it. Don't go there. Find someone to fight alongside you. Amnon warns us of the threat of unchecked lust and we would do well to listen to him. We have to keep going. We move from Amnon now to Tamar. And in verses 12 to 19, she speaks to us of the horror of unrestrained evil. The horror of unrestrained evil. Several commentators have noted that no one listens to Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. No one listens to her. And she is sadly the only person who speaks the truth. Hers is the only voice saying what is right and good and true. And yet her voice is ignored. Let's not ignore her. Let's listen to her 
Let's listen to her plea because it's the only expression of righteousness in this sad affair. Tamar begins by pleading God's Word. Notice verse 12. She says, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. Her point is that God's Word forbids this kind of thing in Israel. And God's Word does so clearly. This must not be done among the people of God, she cries. That word outrageous is not the most helpful translation. It would be better to translate it godless. It's the same word that's used to describe the humiliation of Dinah in Genesis 34. It's the same word that's used to describe Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7. And it's the same word that's used to describe the abomination of Gibeah in Judges 19. So if you know your Old Testament, then you'll recognize that those are some of the darkest moments in Israel's history. And that is exactly Tamar's point. She pleads for her brother not to join the perverse history of those who despise the Word of God. Still, Tamar keeps pleading as she appeals to their personal interests. Notice verse 13. She says, As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of those outrageous or we could say godless fools in Israel. So Tamar begs Amnon to do what he has never done to think about her in a godly way. Think about how this will ruin my life, Tamar pleads. Think about how this will ruin your life, Amnon. That's incredible, isn't it? She is willing to consider his best interest even as he seeks to violate hers. She makes an appeal to their personal interests. Finally, Tamar appeals out of desperation. The end of verse 13. She says, Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Look, the law of Moses clearly forbids such a relationship. So surely, Tamar is not suggesting that the king would defy the law. I think she's desperate. She's looking for any way out. But her pleas are ignored. Amnon, her brother, overpowers her. He violates her. And the assault is, itself is awful enough. But the fallout is just as devastating, if not more so. Tamar is almost immediately discarded. Verse 15, Amnon's lust gives way, Amnon's lust gives way to hate. And he throws Tamar out of his sight. Again, Tamar pleads that this would only make matters worse. But he's not listening. Notice Amnon doesn't call her my sister now, verse 17. He just calls her this woman. Actually, this woman is supplied in our English translations. There's no reference in the Hebrew. It's just put it out. Get it out of my sight. She's discarded. And that means she's disgraced. Before the assault, Tamar was dressed in robes that signaled she was a virgin daughter of the king. That is, she was eligible to be married, but now, verse 19, she tears her robes and she puts ashes on her head. She mourns like someone has died. Who has died, you ask? Well, in a real sense, Tamar has. She's disgraced in the public eye. Friends, I titled this point, The Horror of Unrestrained Evil, because that's exactly what this is. It's horrific. It's revolting, it's vile, it's wicked, and you should call it what it is, evil. This is what sin is. 
And this is what sin does. It defies God and His commands. It destroys people's lives. It's noxious and poisonous to human culture and human community. And sometimes it's necessary for us in our comfortable lives to be confronted with these awful realities. Sometimes it's necessary for our isolation and our insulation to be shattered with reality. This is what sin is. Staring you in the face with all of its unabashed wickedness. I'm not saying that what happened to Tamar was good. Far from it. I am saying that the reminder of what sin is truly like and what sin actually does, that reminder is often necessary. Moments like this keep us from glossing over sin. Moments like this make our stomachs turn and then they remind us that's how our sin looks to a holy God. We can't fix Tamar's heartache any more than we can erase our own sin. But we can listen to her. Please catch me on this. We can listen to her and call sin what it is. Evil. We can listen to her and mourn over sin's devastation. And perhaps most pressing of all, we can listen to her and we can fight against the sin in our own hearts and then we can stand up to sin out in the world around us and call it what it is. Don't call it a hashtag. Call it evil. Call it what it is. It's evil. It's wretched. It's wicked. And when you see it, say something about it. Tamar pleads with us to listen to her. No one listened to her. Let's listen to her. And let's see what this is. It's the horror of unrestrained evil. We have to keep going. From Tamar, we now move to David. And in verses 20 to 22, we see the injustice of unpunished sin. If the last point stretched my ability to not cry, this point stretches my ability to not be angry. It's the injustice of unpunished sin. We can't leave Tamar just yet. After being thrown out of Amnon's house, where does she go? She doesn't go to her father's house, which is telling. She goes to her brother's house, her full brother, Absalom. We'll deal with Absalom more closely in a few minutes, but for now, we notice in verse 20 that he somehow knows what has happened. Perhaps he's been suspicious of Amnon for some time. We don't know. But at any rate, Absalom takes his sister in, and the end of verse 20 describes her tragic state. Look at what it says. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. She's deserted, in other words, almost to the point of being cut off from society. In a tangible sense, Tamar's life is ruined. And the author of 2 Samuel wants you to feel that. If your heart breaks for Tamar, and if your blood pressure rises with the thought that something must be done, then good. That's how you're supposed to read verse 20. With everything in us, we're crying out, someone do something for this dear woman. Someone step in and make this right. And when we read verse 21, we're initially hopeful. The king hears what happened, and the king is not pleased. Notice what it says, verse 21. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. Understand, friends, David's anger is absolutely the right response. He should be angry. 
And that anger should compel him to act. As the king, David was tasked with enforcing God's Word in the nation. It was his job as the king to know the Scriptures and to apply them with justice. But along with being the king, David is also her father. So he has a double responsibility to do something. As her father, David was entrusted with this woman's well-being. It was his responsibility to manage his household and to do so in step with the Scriptures. So when verse 21 tells us David is angry, there is this glimmer of hope that the king, her father of all people, is going to do something. But that glimmer of hope is snuffed out with a quick conclusion to verse 21. David is angry, but that's all he is. He doesn't do anything. David doesn't confront Amnon. He doesn't punish Amnon. We don't even have a record that he comforted his daughter. He passively sits back and does nothing. Some older manuscripts of 2 Samuel include a statement here that says David favored Amnon because he was his oldest son and presumed to be the heir to the throne. And perhaps that's the case. Perhaps David is showing favoritism. But it could also be that David felt he had no credibility to confront Amnon. I mean, think about it, friends. Amnon saw a beautiful woman, he schemed, and he took her for himself. Who does that sound like? It sounds like David who did something similar to Bathsheba. Saw a beautiful woman, schemed, and took her. So you can imagine, if David were to go and confront his son, you can imagine Amnon scoffing at him and saying, you hypocrite. Who are you to come talk to me? What did you do? But that's just it. David's responsibility still exists regardless of his own compromised credibility As both king and father, David is responsible to deal with his sin. God has given him this responsibility, but David doesn't do anything. You see, this is why perhaps the most vital quality of leadership is courage. Courage. Specifically, the courage to act. It's never easy to lead. And oftentimes, pretty much every time, Leadership requires you to confront your own failures first in order to then do what God has called you to do. Listen, nearly everyone in this room is going to have some position of leadership in their life. Whether it's leadership in your workplace, leadership in your home as a husband or a mother or an employee at the job, you're going to have some position of leadership And in order for you to do what you are called to do and expected to do, you're going to have to have courage because every day your sin is going to present a list of accusations against you that are going to tempt you to neglect what God has given you to do. That's what you see here with David. David's courage seems to have failed at this point. He does nothing. He leaves the sin unpunished. And in doing so, David adds to the injustice of Tamar's situation. Perhaps the most necessary quality of leadership is courage. Sadly, the effects of David's passivity don't stop with Tamar. The final character in the chapter is Absalom. And he's able to play his part largely because David doesn't fulfill his responsibility. If David would have done what he was supposed to do, nothing in verses 23-39 through likely would have happened. So this is what we see from Amnon. I mean, from Absalom, in verses 23 to 39, we see the danger of uncontrolled rage. The danger of uncontrolled rage. As you might expect, Absalom hates Amnon, 
Verse 22 tells it plainly. He doesn't even speak to his brother, either good or bad. Absalom ignores him. Why? Because Absalom is seething with anger and plotting revenge. The the rest of the chapter, in fact, the next several chapters, show us a life turned upside down and eventually destroyed by rage. Notice how it plays out in the passage. Verse 23 tells us two years have passed, which speaks to the depth of Absalom's desire for vengeance. I can't plan for anything for two years. This guy plots for two years. He bides his time, waiting until the moment is right. And that moment ultimately comes during a time of celebration. Verse 24, it's time for Absalom to shear his sheep, which means it's time to have a feast. Absalom would have an abundance of provisions, and no one would suspect foul play if Absalom wanted all of his family to come and join in his feast. So he invites his father and all of his brothers. Again, just like with Jonadab's earlier scheme, we see David is included because it gives it an air of credibility. David politely declines, which opens the door for Absalom in verse 26 to pursue his real objective, Amnon. David seems suspicious at first, but Absalom is persistent. He keeps pressing for Amnon to come, and David finally agrees. We don't know how much David knew at this point, but at a minimum, we see that passivity continues to dog David's leadership and his family. He knows something is up. He doesn't do anything. And so, verse 29 describes what every reader of this chapter knows is going to happen. Absalom has Amnon murdered. He takes vengeance into his own hands. If David fails to enforce justice, then Absalom misapplies justice. It's true that Amnon deserved punishment, but Absalom doesn't have the authority to do this. Absalom is not the king. And no matter how badly David has failed, Absalom should not take matters into his own hands. But he does, and the result is chaos. Verses 30-36 to describe the fallout. No one seems to know what happened. At first, David thinks all of his sons are dead. But crafty Jonadab comes back and he says, no, only Amnon has died. How does Jonadab know that? The text doesn't say, but crafty people have a way of slithering around and picking up useful information. All the sons come back in verse 36, and the reunion is full of bitterness. David and his sons weep over what has happened. What about Absalom? What happens to this angry, vengeful son of the king? Well, he flees for his life, verse 37 He flees to his mother's family in Gesher. This is his maternal grandfather that he goes to stay with. And he stays there for three years. That's the end of Absalom's rage. He thinks that by killing his brother, he will make things right. But in the end, he only succeeds in making things worse. Again, it's such a sobering reminder of where sin leads. What began as anger... And Absalom's heart now has him fleeing for his life. It hasn't done anything to rectify the injustice done to his sister. It's only made matters worse. This is what sin does. It destroys everything in its wake. Friends, you could be forgiven if by the end of this chapter you're asking yourself, is this the kingdom of Israel or the realm of the Canaanites? Are these God's people? Because this sure looks like something you would find among the Philistines. And on some level, that's the right conclusion. The utter wickedness of this chapter from start to finish should cause us to recognize that the nation as a whole needs something, or we could say someone better. 
David is Israel's ideal king and he's sitting on the throne and yet injustice and evil still run rampant. They need something more than the law to cleanse their sinful hearts. They need someone better than David to save them and reign over them. David can't even reign over his own house. You see, this is part of the Old Testament's way of preparing us for the Messiah. Left to ourselves, this is where humanity goes toward wickedness. Left to ourselves, this is where we go, you and I. We go headlong after sin that devastates and destroys. From start to finish, the Bible is consistently telling us this one message, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. In fact, left to ourselves, we will utterly destroy everyone around us. If there is to be any goodness, any redemption, any life, then God Himself will have to come down to earth and make it happen. Because we're sure not going to do it. It might surprise you. It might surprise you, friends, but as Christians, the takeaway we have from 2 Samuel 13 is that we need the Gospel. We need the Gospel. We desperately need the Gospel. We need a Savior who can conquer our Amnon-like lust. We need a Redeemer who can cover our Tamar-like shame. We need the Messiah who can overcome our David-like passivity. And we need the King who can defeat our Absalom-like rage. 2 Samuel 13 is disturbing, no doubt. But it should also remind us of how deeply we need the Gospel. And, and receiving that reminder, as hard as it is to hear in the lives of real people, receiving that reminder should then deepen our joy that God has actually met that great need through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, it breaks my heart what happens in this chapter. But the only way to deal with it is through the cross. The only way to deal with it is through the cross. It's at the cross where the justice of God against wrong and against sin meets the love of God for sinners like us. So that urge in your, the pit of your gut that is crying out for someone to do something about Tamar, God says, I'll do something. And He makes every wrong right, either at the cross or on the last day. It's the only way to keep, to make sense of these things is through the cross. Where is God in this seemingly godless chapter? David's family do such godly things and God Himself is never, is never even mentioned. Where is God amidst all the devastation? Well, friends, God's right where He's been throughout history. On His throne, fulfilling His Word according to His wisdom. Remember, God told David in 2 Samuel 12, I will bring the sword against your own house and I will raise up enemies against you from within your own house. What has God done here in chapter 13? Exactly what He promised He would do. God is fulfilling His Word. Now, is that easy? Of course not. And we shouldn't pretend that it is. Are people still accountable for the sin they have done? The injustices they have committed? Absolutely. And God will deal with them in His time. So I'm not saying any of this is easy or that people aren't responsible for what they do. But what I am saying is that things are not spinning out of control. The kingdom is not lost because of David's failure. God's Word stands firm. God's purpose endures. God's justice will one day make all things right. God is not absent from this passage, friends. He has not and He will not leave His people to themselves. 
He's working to fulfill His Word, and that should give us hope, even in passages like 2 Samuel 13. Amen? Let's pray.